This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. All right, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you're online, open your Bible to Romans chapter 12. If you're in the room, that's page 948. If you didn't bring a Bible and you're using the one in the pew in front of you, we are a Bible church. We love God's word and we believe that the Bible is not only God's gift to us, but it's what we place ourselves under for authority. It's what we allow to inform everything that we do, both corporately and individually. And we are excited. I often want to call it joyful obedience. Not begrudgingly. We love to obey the Bible. We love to read it. We love to study it. We love to hear from God in it. And so we are now in the third week of a series that we are calling A Gospel People. You could summarize the series this way. We are talking about the unique culture that is created by the saving grace of God being applied to people's lives. little definition I came up with the other day, so let me just say that again. The unique culture that is created by the saving grace of God being applied to people's lives. So the gospel of Jesus Christ says that any person, every person can be freed from the futility of chasing after the temporary things of this world and we can be delivered from the fear of judgment from God and instead of fearing judgment from him, we can know unending pleasure of life with God. And that begins, that can begin for us not one day when we die, but just as soon as we will just drop our guard and open ourselves up to Jesus. New life starts for anybody who drops their guard and opens themselves up to Jesus. And that's the good news of Jesus proclaimed. And what we're talking about in a gospel people is the good news of of Jesus proclaimed and the culture that rises up among people who have had that happen to them. Ephesians 2 says that when you have been rescued from Jesus, you aren't just better off for it. It says that you are actually alive because of it. You used to be dead, but through Jesus, you've been made alive. Uh, Another way of saying that, uh, there's a prophet called Ezekiel, who lived 800 years before Jesus was born, and he said that one day one would come and God would do a work through him, this Messiah, who would take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And so just think about that metaphor. Stone does nothing. But a heart of flesh pumps blood. And then countless places throughout the New Testament tell us that because we've been given now hearts of flesh, we should be different kinds of people. There should be something distinct about this very group. Not just groups like us, It should be applied to groups like us too, but this very group should be distinct. In fact, the New Testament says that so 
consistently, basically shouts it throughout the New Testament to the point that if there isn't a distinctness, if there isn't a notable way, especially in the way that we treat other people that's different about this group, then it is very fair to ask, has our heart been pierced at all? Or are we still walking around with heavy, dead hearts of stone? If there's nothing distinct, it's fair to ask if we actually have a heart of flesh. And my intention this morning is not to cause you to doubt whether or not you have one, heart of flesh, whether or not to question your salvation. But I do make this point to just kind of raise the serious stakes that we are talking about. A gospel culture is not secondary to a robust doctrinal culture, robust doctrine. A gospel culture is the normal result of the gospel taking root in people. It should happen. Uh, In John 13, 35, Jesus said it this way, that people would know his disciples by their or our love for one another. You want to know who's a disciple of Jesus? Look at how they treat other people. So this is not theology first, and we'll try to work on our community if we have a little time left over. It can be theology first. We always start with good doctrine. But if our theology doesn't lead us to these things that we've been talking about, first week, a culture of regular encouragement, last week, of of honest confession of who we truly are, if our theology doesn't lead to that, then we have to go back and re-examine the whole thing. Because our theology should lead us right here. Theology should bring us right to this place. So there's no such thing as some of us are theologians and the rest of us are just average Joes. We're all practicing theologians. All of us. So are you with me in that? We're all practicing theologians. This week, uh, we're going to look at one of the most helpful gospel culture verses in all of the Bible. It's in Romans chapter 12. And we're talking specifically about honor. Giving honor and receiving honor. And I have basically two points to make. I just want to tell you what they are right now so you can follow along as I build them out. Simple two points. I'm actually going to just switch the order of the the kinds of honor we're talking about around from the way I I just gave them because I think it makes more sense that way. So the first thing I'm going to say is this. That we can be and we are worthy of receiving honor. That's my first point. You are worthy of receiving honor. And I think this part of how I'm going to explain this will blow your mind a little bit. The honor that I want to help us see that we are worthy of receiving is honor from God. And you heard that, right. When it comes to honor, where I want to start is you are worthy of receiving honor from God. And then that first point actually sets up how we are with the second point. Even outside of this group, we can show honor to other people because God has made us worthy of honor. And therefore, number two, we can be free and even extravagant in how we give honor to other people and how we show honor to other people. 
So just those two points. That's all I'm going to do this morning. You can be, if you open yourself up to be, you can be honored by God. And number two, in doing that, in receiving honor from him, you will know his love and then you will be able to give honor to other people in his name because of him. And when those things happen, God's glorified and more people come to find their rest and their peace and their joy in him. And that's what we're after. So Romans 12, starting at chapter 9, or starting at verse 9, let me read and just put your eyes in your Bible and read along from Romans 12, starting at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So before we get to honor, which is in the middle verse 10, let's see what the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this, is doing here. So the first thing we read, let love be genuine. We could throw out some guesses as, as to what he means by genuine, but there's just an easier way to say, well, what, what does genuine love mean? So first, the original word that we get here in our English Bible translated as genuine literally means without hypocrisy. It starts with a word from the theater, that means actor, and then it says that, that genuine is the opposite of one who's acting. So literally, the word in Greek is the unactor. It's a good definition of genuine. Be truthful, be authentic. But even though we've got a good definition, we say, well, we're unacting when we're genuine. We still don't know, well, then what are we being truthful to? If we're being truthful or authentic, authentic to what? Truthful to what? What kind of love should we have without hypocrisy? And the answer to that tracks all the way back to verse 1 of this chapter. So if you look at Romans 12.1, it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's a significant shift in, in Romans between the, the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. And you can see it right here. You know that in the way that 12 begins. It says, I appeal to you, therefore. In other words, based on the previous 11 chapters, and, and right here is what it actually kind of says, summarizes in 12.1, what, what those 11 chapters do. They lay out and they explain and go into incredible detail about the mercies of God. That's what Romans 1 to 11 is about. It's about the mercy of God. So we won't read this, but if you just let your eyes kind of wander back a few verses, you will see a good summation of that in what Paul is saying toward the end of chapter 11. And he says there that actually the very reason that God has allowed so much, if you just kind of look around the world and say, this can't be a lot of what God intends for the world to be like. 
it seems like if God has a will and a way, there's an awful lot of disobedience happening to him in the world. And Paul says, you're right. Actually, Paul says, God has allowed so much disobedience in the lives of people so that he would be able to, in his timing, according to his will and and the working of his plan, show people unfathomable mercy through Jesus Christ. So there is this notion out there that God is waiting to get people. That he is just waiting to pounce on people when they screw up. If you ever hear, I think God is just out to get me, ask people to read the end of Romans 11 with you. God's not waiting to get you in your disobedience. He has patiently endured your disobedience for every moment of your life up until this one, and he will continue to should he tarry so that he might shower you with the greatest mercy the world or the whole universe will ever know. And in view of that, the first 11 chapters of Romans we see are about the patience of God and his plan to be merciful to Jesus Christ. And then he says in chapter 12, this is how mercy receivers, lifelong disobeyers, world full of disobedience, but people who have received mercy are going to live a certain way. This is how mercy receivers live. And this isn't a chapter about morality. You see right here, this is a chapter about worship. Present your bodies, do all this as, a spirit, as your spiritual worship. And then in worship now, verse 9, we love others genu- genuinely. And genuine mercy then is even when they don't line up the way we want them to, we still love them because we never line up the way that God wants us to, but he loves us anyway. And then we see... A few other things come after this, kind of help us define what's genuine love. Next is abhorring evil and loving good. I think that's a strange transition from genuine love to hating evil. That's what abhorring means, is, is hating. Realize that actually is not strange at all to God. That's what he sees. With him, genuine love hates evil and clings to good. And it's not genuine love at all to keep a place for evil. And so even though we are disobedient, God also says, but I can't tolerate evil. And so he takes evil and he directs evil at Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he pays for the disobedience and therefore God can cling to us having been purified, washed clean and now even in his sight when we confess our sins made good. And now we come to verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So we live in a society that loves honor. You can make the honor roll in school. We're going to honor people for their academic achievements, their good grades. The Bears have a ring of honor, Soldier Field. There are award shows to honor people for their music or their movies. 
But even in a society that loves to honor people, I wonder if we really know what true honor is. I mean, all of those things that I mentioned, they honor people, but usually the ones being honored enjoy it the most, right? We kind of, we have award shows, so all the people who receive the awards can feel the adulation and the, the praise of those that there are honoring them. And the problem is that's, that plays right into our natural desire for honor, for recognition, we have a desire for approval that really is insatiable. And the problem becomes if we're left to look around the world for honor. If we're looking around the world for honor, we will never feel like we get enough and we'll always want just a little bit more. We love to have people think highly of us. So let me just give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, you do something good at work. Your boss sends an email. She or he calls everybody together for a minute, tells everybody how good of a job you did. Maybe a few of your coworkers congratulate you, and that makes you feel really good. Who doesn't love that? If you're an introvert, you hate at least that part of it. But deep down, everybody kind of likes being recognized for their good work, whether in a crowd or whether through some other way. We'd like to be called out for our good work. The high you get from that, being recognized, will last for a little while until you do something else good. But let's just say this time around, no one notices, and you're just expected to keep working now, and you wonder, why is nobody recognizing the good work I'm doing anymore? Nothing has really changed. You're still getting a paycheck for your job. You're still doing good. You haven't been, they're, they're, you're not being disapproved of, but now you're just kind of wondering, why is nobody kind of recognizing me? Uh, here's another one. You've cleaned something at home while your spouse is, is gone, and they come home, and they're talking to you, but you're, just, you're standing there in, you know, in the clean family room on the vacuumed carpet, pillows nicely fluffed and arranged on the clean couch. And your husband or wife doesn't even notice. They're just going on about their own thing. And you're just kind of trying to present, just kind of rubbing the couch, sort of presenting, you know, just anything. Ooh, doesn't the carpet feel fluffy? It feels fluffier than it did earlier today. Does it feel fluffy to you? Should we take our socks off? You just want to scream, who cares what you've been doing all day? Look at what I've done. Appreciate me. Thank me for the work. Now, I've never done that. I've never had the urge to do that. I assume somebody else has wanted appreciation for cleaning something around the house. But when we don't get it, we kind of recognize we crave recognition, honor. So the point is that we love to be honored. But among us, God knows we must have a culture where we don't seek our own honor but instead we seek to honor other people. It's not going to work if we all walk around hoping everybody else is looking and recognizing and honoring and glorifying us. So the question then is, what does God do? That's a very natural desire. We all, in fact, have it. So what does God do with that? How does God make us into a culture where we can outdo one another in showing honor? 
And I think the answer is very surprising. It's a surprise a lot of us. Now, we would think that, that God would say, you know what? You're really not that big of a deal. Do you know who I am? Do you know how glorious I am? Maybe just get over yourself is what we think God would say. But actually, God says the opposite. God says, I know that you like honor, so I will honor you. He takes our desire for recognition, our desire to be, to be seen and known and appreciated, and here's the thing. He completes it. He fulfills it. If you're looking for honor in the world around you, we will spend all of our lives seeking it. We might do well, we might get a little taste of it from time to time, but we're never feeling like we got quite enough or we got it quite the way we wanted it. So we'll always be looking for more. But God knows that if he is the one to honor us, he can actually fulfill our our deepest longings. He can know us perfectly, he can see us perfectly, and he can validate us in a way that no one in the world or nothing in this world will ever be able to. And so let me just, if, you, if you're going, where is this? Let me show you where I see this in the Bible. The, the first place is earlier in this letter, in Romans 2, verse 7. It says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor. And immortality. In other words, people are doing good, trying to get the approval of God. And we might say, well, God will say, you're not that big of a deal. But no, what does it say in Romans 2.7? It says that when people seek in well-doing for glory and honor and immortality, he will give them eternal life. We seek honor and he gives us, he rewards us, honor. The context in, in chapter 2 is God preparing, is preparing for how God will judge people. And when Paul says people will seek glory and honor and immortality, he does mean people who are seeking to do good in the eyes of God. That's that's what he means. But it's clearly human honor, not God's honor. And yet yet it still says God gives eternal life, which is very clearly what he gives to those that he loves and blesses. Eternal life is the ultimate reward from God. That's reinforced by chapter 2, verse 10, where it says that everyone who does good Again, right there, is given honor by God. The clearest place, the Romans 2 is good, but the clearest place that this is taught is by Jesus himself. He's telling his disciples about his soon-to-be death and then what's going to happen after he dies. And this is what it says in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. John 12, 26, and there's one more. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He's trying to explain to them how, how blind they are. And listen to what he says. This is John 5, 44. How can you believe when you receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. The Pharisees' problem, Jesus says, can be very much our problem. They were so concerned with being honored by other people 
that they failed to realize that actually God would honor them if only they would let go of their pride and come humbly to him. So we are hungry for glory and honor. And we'll try to satisfy it, that hunger, by, by looking to every part of this world to give it to us, that, that which we crave. But when we come to God, we see that he will pour out onto us blessing and honor upon blessing and honor. If you wonder, where do I go to be satisfied? Where do I go to be fulfilled? Where do I go to feel like I'm worthy and valued and validated? Don't go to anything in this world. That'll give you a little taste. All you want is more. It's like a hit of crack. Go to God. He will fill you up and he will keep filling you and he never runs out of that which he can pour into your life. Uh, T.J. Timms, pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, says that our problem isn't that we seek too much honor. It's that we don't seek enough. We seek this low, flash-in-the-pan honor of the present world when we can be forever satiated by the affection and the joy of the God who created us and, and will redeem us. This is like a friend saying, hey, I want to bless you. I want to honor you. I want to love you. I want to take you downtown. I want to take you to Gibson's Steakhouse, my treat. And you just say, you know what? Let's just swing by the Taco Bell drive-thru instead. That sounds just as good. It's not just as good. Go get a steak at Gibson's. Look for better honor. Don't look here. Look here for honor. And then it's that kind of honor that God sets up the second part. Outdo one another in showing honor. Here's the connection. If I'm in need of honor, if I'm looking for it, if I'm craving honor, I'm going to have a lot of trouble giving honor to somebody else. If I'm most focused on my own honor, it's going to be really hard for me to honor other people. But if I know that God honors me, and every time I wonder if I'm worth it, and every time I wonder if, if I'm going to be noticed, if what I'm doing is going to be appropriately seen and recognized by somebody else, but if I, instead I, I think, you know what? It doesn't matter what other people around me think because I know that the God of the universe, the most high God, has loved me and blessed me and honors me. It really frees me up to give away honor to other, to other people because I don't need to hoard honor for myself. I have so much coming in that I really can't even process all of it. I don't think you can process that, and I know I can't. I can't process that the most high God of all creation, sovereign and good, perfectly loving, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit honors me. And so if I, I, I can't, that's so much honor that I don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I need all of that honor. But if I've got that coming in, I can easily honor other people. And in this way, what we actually can become is honor conduits for God. 
He honors us. And because that flow of honor into us is inexhaustible, we can be free and we can keep honoring. We can let that honor flow forward to other people. And this actually means that we can rightly order things where God is truly our God and and lesser things, even good things, even good things but lesser things can become God in our life if we're looking to find too much meaning and purpose in them. So it's possible to reverse that order where God is in our God, but something else in the world is our God, and it happens when we're looking to that thing for the honor that really God wants to give. So if you're constantly looking for validity in those around you, your boss, your spouse, your friends, eventually what happens is their approval, their validation becomes so important to you that you will make earning that your primary motivation. But on the other hand, if you're satisfied with the affections and pleasures and joys of God, you're just, openly, you're just open to consistently honoring other people. You don't need it from other people, so you don't have to work so hard for, for it from them. You can just serve, you can just love, you can just bless. You can be less, make other people more. And here's how this works itself out practically. Uh, let's just say you do something small for which you want an enormous amount of credit. Uh, here's another thing that I've never done. I have never done something very small around my house and wanted a lot of credit for it. I do not do small things around the house loudly so I will be noticed in doing them. I'm lying to you. I do that all the time. I want Holly to see the smallest thing that I'm doing and just be so impressed with me. And it's just so small. It's, like, it's, it's so small. And so I just, I do everything loud at home, just loudly, because I want to be noticed. It's really not that big of a deal. And so when she doesn't celebrate me for the very small thing that I'm doing with grandiosity that I'm hoping for, in that moment, what, what's really happening is I'm, I'm looking for my honor from her. And I will be upset because I'm not receiving the honor which, which I'm craving. But again, if I'm confident in the Almighty God that he's honored me, and beyond my wildest dreams, he's pouring into me blessing, I can serve around my house humbly and sacrificially. And whether or not my family gives me any kind of credit at all doesn't really matter. Actually, I can serve my wife. I can serve my kids without the need for any recognition. Because I know that God is blessing me. God is honoring me. So then what does it mean to outdo one another in showing honor? I I think it means this. Here's another definition for you. To be satisfied by the honor that God lavishes on us so that we can become conduits of his love and grace to other people. We should be so satisfied by the honor that God gives us that we can be conduits for God's honor being poured out in other people. In a corporate body, that means we need to actively assume that not all of our preferences will be met. That's one huge thing in outdoing one another and showing honor. We just need to actively, not passively, 
which is to just say, well, when I'm not honored, I guess I'll try to get over it. I mean, actively kind of walk in going, I'm not going to get everything I want out of this. We're going to make decisions that I'm not going to like. There's going to be things that happen that aren't my choice in this meeting. And I'm going to not only be okay with it, I'm going to love it because it means somebody else is having their preference met and somebody else is enjoying this in a way. I'm just going to love that. Galatians 6.2 says that we should bear one another's burdens. We honor each other when we try to understand their burdens. How are you going to bear somebody's burdens if you have no understanding of that burden at all? Now, there's been a massive, massive amount of division even in the church these last couple of years. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ approaching just a wide range of of personal and and social and, and political issues very differently. What would happen if we see, when we see division creeping in, our questions were not, how do I form my arguments so that I can get my point across? But instead we start asking, how could I outdo the other people that I'm with in showing honor? Our question isn't, how can I be heard, but how can I promote love in unity with other people? I think I'd like to call this extravagant honor. And I think it comes from the last part of, verse, of Romans 12, 11. Don't be lazy in your spirituality. Be active in your spirituality. Be, have, be zealous for the work of the Spirit. Look at ways to find ways to serve other people. Be extravagant in your honor. Extravagant honor asks so much more than maybe what's legal or what's ethical or what's moral. Extravagant honor asks what takes the grace of God shown to me in my sin and disobedience where in Jesus he did not consider remaining in glory. This is just Philippians 2 that I'm doing right now. In remaining in glory in heaven to be a viable plan. So Jesus said, I could not come to earth. I could not be born as a baby. I could not live sinlessly. I could not go to a sacrificial death on the cross. But I want to. And so he took on the humility of a servant all the way to the point of death. And with his entire life, with everything that Jesus is, he bought us the possibility of being honored by God. The Bible actually says that we receive a glory like Jesus. And his resurrection is celebrated by the whole universe. All the spiritual powers. And so will yours be if you're in him. So Romans 12.10 says, essentially, look, put effort in. Make it your focus to find ways to honor other people. If you wonder, well, who do I honor? Here are some groups specifically that the New Testament calls us to honor. 1 Peter 2 is really similar to this. It literally says, 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. If you wonder who it means by everyone, it means everyone. 
Ephesians 6, children, honor your mother and father. Ephesians 6, 2. It's also the, the fifth of the Ten Commandments. 1 Timothy 5 says that we should honor widows. Why? Why specifically widows? First, because they're easily forgotten. And second, they might be vulnerable to being taken advantage of by the systems of the world. Romans 13, honor governing authorities. 1 Peter 3, husbands honor wives. Noting there in, in 1 Peter 3 that this is, is often the opposite of the world. Especially in a first, cultural, first century context, uh, husbands are usually bigger, they're usually physically stronger than their spouse. So God often in his word actually tells us to honor those who we would perceive to be less than us. In sometimes the marriage context, less strong, less physically able. It actually says that we should do that as a church in 1 Corinthians 12. It says there, honor the lesser parts of the body. Don't worry about honoring those who have recognizable roles and responsibilities. They'll get some honor. That's, that's fine. Honor the lesser parts of the body. 1 Timothy 5 says that we should honor elders and others who lead well. That one seems kind of self-serving, but I, I don't leave out parts of the Bible where it says that we should do that. There are, other, there are many other categories, groups of people that I could list. These are kind of the most direct ones that I've found. And so if you're wondering, well, who do I honor? There are some very specific things that you can look to the New Testament for, but I would just point you here, where we've been studying, outdo one another, so one another, 1 Peter 2.17, everyone. You won't go wrong if you're seeking to honor somebody. You can't screw that up. You can't honor the wrong person. Because God says, honor the people who might appear less than you, and God says of elders, of governing authorities, of other people, honor those over you, honor one another among you. So whatever, wherever direction you're looking, whether it's to the side in parallel with you, whether it's below you or whether it's above you, you will find somebody that the New Testament calls you to honor. So folks, let's be a gospel people who are conduits, receiving unfathomable honor from God and letting that flow through us, being satiated by it so that we are freed up and we have the joy of honoring other people. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's actively try to do this. Let's pray. Father God, by your mercy and according to your grace, May we outdo one another in reflecting even a part of the honor that you have showed us. It's in your beautiful and precious name that we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.